careers and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And thus reads the word of God. Now, I was saved age 21. Uh, I had no gospel influence as I was growing up. And it was when I left home and moved away to go to university that I uh, lived in a house with six other guys. And, and two of those guys were strong believers in the Lord. And they were faithful to share the gospel with me. And, uh, and after a year of, of searching and exploring the claims of Christianity, the Lord saved me. And I remember reading the New Testament for the first time in my life, age 21. And I remember reading the portion of Acts that we just read. I remember reading about Stephen for the first time. And I remember very vividly really liking this guy. I just loved the story of Stephen. It's short, but I loved it. And as I think back to those days, I, I wonder what was it that I liked about Stephen? What compelled me towards him? And I think, at least in part, the answer is Stephen was a very ordinary guy. He's not an apostle. He's not performing miracles or, or doing the things that the apostles did. He was a very ordinary guy. And yet, he did extraordinary things for the Lord. He did extraordinary things for the Lord. And that captivated me when I was in my early 20s. And I always like sharing the story of Stephen with, with young folks, such as yourself. I am always excited to have the opportunity to come and speak to a group like this because what I see as I stand here and look at you is enormous potential for the glory of Christ. There is enormous potential right here for the glory of Christ if we trust that you have much of your life yet to live, to devote yourself to the gospel, to obedience to Jesus Christ, to live out a life of faith in him, there is no telling what the Lord might do through you. And as you look at a man like Stephen, the question might be, how is it that this ordinary man did such extraordinary things? How is it this ordinary man did such extraordinary things? And the answer is very, very simple. And that is that he lived a life in communion with Christ. Stephen lived a life in communion with Christ. That was the foundation of everything he did. And everything that we read about of Stephen, though it is a brief narrative, comes out of that. That's the wellspring. That's what issues forth the fruit it's not that Stephen in and of himself was a brave man. It's not that Stephen in and of himself was a particularly strong man. It's that he lived a life of communion with Christ and that allowed this ordinary guy to do extraordinary things. And in that way, the testimony of Stephen in Scripture serves as an example for us. He is one that we might look to imitate this evening. 
My prayer for you is twofold. Number one, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you would see the extraordinary things that God does through this ordinary man, that you would turn away from your sin and your pride and cast yourself on Christ. And secondly, that if you are someone who by God's grace knows the Lord, your sins are forgiven and you are in a right relationship with him, that this short narrative would cause your love for Christ to grow yet further and you would be resolved to live out a life of communion with Christ and who knows what the Lord might do through you. So let's look through the narrative and see what it is that Stephen does and it begins with this vision that he has. We read that when they heard these things, the authorities that were around him, they were enraged. They ground their teeth. They were angry at him. Why? Because Stephen had just preached a sermon. All of Acts chapter 7 is Stephen's sermon. It's actually the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Why were they enraged? Because his sermon went long. I'm kidding. That's a joke, British joke. He didn't preach too long to make them angry. He preached a convicting sermon. He confronted them. He said, God sent all these messengers to you and you rejected every single one, culminating in the Messiah himself. And they didn't like what they heard. So they're enraged. But, verse 55, in contrast, Luke tells us, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. So Stephen sees Christ. And this is where it all begins. This is his foundation. Everything he does springs from the fact that he was a man who had met with Christ. Now, I want to be really clear. Stephen is not seeing Christ here for the first time. He has a vision of Christ just moments before he dies. That's not the first time Stephen met with the Lord. Just two chapters back, when we meet Stephen for the first time, one thing we read about him is that his face was like that of an angel. I love that description of Stephen. His face was like that of an angel. He's the only person in all of scripture to get that description. No one else is described like that. What does it mean that Stephen's face was like that of an angel? Well, there is one other person in scripture who has a similar description given to him, and that is Moses, whose face shone it shone when he came down from Sinai, having met with God himself. And so it would seem to be that as Luke includes this detail in the narrative, that his face was like that of an angel, he's indicating to us that this man knew the Lord. Here was a man who not only knew the Lord, but was in constant communion with him. Day by day, Stephen's face was like that of an angel. Here's a man who is in the habit of meeting with Christ. And so in a sense, we might say, as his life comes to an end on this earth, of course, the most natural thing for him to see would be the risen Lord Jesus. And that is the foundation of everything that Stephen ever did. Or let me put it in another way. This man would not have accomplished anything if it had not been for his relationship with the Lord anything of eternal significance. You see, here's the first point of application for us. 
You either meet with Christ or you don't. You either live a life of significance or you choose not to. You're making decisions as you opt into this or not. You either say, I'm someone who's going to pursue Christ, look to have a, a relationship with him or not. And it's not an overstatement to say that therein you are making a decision as to the significance, the eternal significance of your life. To meet with Christ is to choose a trajectory that will bear witness, have a testimony spoken of in eternity. Not because you're anything special. Not because you bring something to the table but because you're choosing to meet with the most special person that has ever lived. And I'm not saying that you're choosing to have visions of Christ. Stephen's vision is unusual. This is not the way that you and I choose to meet with the Savior. The way we meet with him is very ordinarily through this book. This is the sure and steady testimony of the Lord Jesus, and this is how you meet with him. And so it's a very ordinary thing in one sense that I'm exhorting you to this evening to open this book and to read it, to engage with it, to come with a humble heart to this text through prayer and ask that the Lord would open your eyes to the Lord Jesus. But don't underestimate how significant an activity that is. It is the foundation of every life that has been lived of any eternal worth. And that was certainly true for Stephen. Because what happens after that is certain things that sound very Jesus-like. If I can say it like this, Stephen, having met with Christ, became like him. This is something that Luke is, is showing us in this short narrative, that everything that's happening to Stephen, everything that he's doing, is in a sense something that Jesus himself has already done. Stephen died the most Christ-like death in all of the Bible. Having seen Jesus, Stephen becomes like Jesus. How so? Well, having seen him, he starts to speak like him. Notice Stephen's confession. He says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's a profound confession. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. If you go through the Gospels and you look at all the names by which Jesus is named, all the names by which he refers to himself, the Son of Man is his favorite name for himself. He uses it over and over and over and over again. Interestingly, no one ever uses it of Jesus. So here's this title that Jesus uses of himself all the time, but no one speaks that of him. Why? Because if you look at the Son of Man, it actually goes back to the Old Testament. It's a name taken from Daniel chapter 7, and it's a name that infers the fact that he himself is God. It's a claim to his deity. And Jesus uses it to say, I am God here in the flesh. No one dares speak it of him. Either you were hard against Jesus and it enraged you, or you were for Jesus, but you had so much reverence for his deity that you didn't dare speak that title. 
Even when you get to the epistles and the apostles are explaining Christ to us, none of them go near the Son of Man title. With one exception, the only person who dares to call Jesus the Son of Man is Stephen right here. So you see, this is a profound confession. Stephen, having seen Jesus, now starts to speak like him. And again, we find our second point of application. That if you are someone pursuing communion with Christ, you'll start to speak like him. This will be the fruit of your life. We have a friend back home who Laura and I just joke about any topic of conversation you care to bring up with him. Very humble man. Anything you engage him on, within minutes, he is speaking about Christ. And this is not something that he is forcing. It's not something that he's even aware of, I'm sure. But rather, my only conclusion is that this man lives in communion with Christ, and so he can't help but speak about him. And if you're here this evening and you know that it's true of you, that you are not often found to be speaking about Christ, it might be because you don't have a relationship with him. Because you're not pursuing communion with him. And so you find no cause to speak of him. And in turn, you're not choosing an extraordinary path. You're choosing a lesser path because you're not pursuing a relationship with Christ. Now look at where Stephen goes next. Having seen Jesus, he starts to speak like him. Secondly, we might say, having seen Jesus, he starts to suffer like him. So Luke goes on to tell us they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. You can picture the scene. Stephen is there professing what he sees. Here is the son of man. And the authorities hate that confession. And so they raise their voices to to silence him and they cover their ears because they don't want to hear it. And then we read, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Now that phrase to be cast out of the city is not arbitrary. It's actually a phrase that occurs throughout the Bible. We could go back to the Old Testament and find that phrase in the law. If you come into contact with something that had leprosy, if your garment gets contaminated with leprosy, the garment is to be cast out of the city. If you are unclean, defiled, you are to leave the city, you are cast out of the city. Later on in the Old Testament, other people are shamed by being cast out of the city. And so it's no accident that when they seek to crucify Jesus, they take him out of the city. It's an act of shaming someone. And they do this very same thing to Stephen. And then they kill him, not on a cross, but nevertheless, they end his life in the same way that they ended Jesus' life. That's the verdict. They say this man has to be killed right now. And so you see what happens when you start living out a life of communion with Christ is inevitably you start to suffer like him. 
Now, it's tricky in a situation like this in the West to speak about this kind of suffering because in God's wisdom and his providence, it's been relatively easy to testify to faith in Christ to not be persecuted. That's not the norm. Something that we often try and teach our kids is that most Christians, most Christians' experience around the world is in some way to suffer, to suffer for their faith in Christ. And that may be a reality at some point for those in the West. But regardless of that, even now we could think about your willingness to be marginalized based on a testimony of faith in Christ. Peer pressure is a real thing, perhaps more in your life right now than at any other point in life. I would say probably right now, peer pressure at your age is about as strong as it gets. Pressure to conform. Pressure to do the thing that it's called to do. Pressure to not be someone else. And you know yourself whether you're willing to testify to faith in Christ. With all that that might bring, being left out of the cool kids, being the butt of the joke, being not included, whether that is a reality in your life or actually you choose an easier path. And if you choose an easier path, it might be because that foundation hasn't actually been laid. That actually you don't have a life of communion with Christ. And that's why this fruit is not evident in your life. Now from there, an incredible thing happens. Having seen Jesus, Stephen becomes like him. How? He starts to get used by God like Christ was. Now, what do I mean by that? If you look at the text, we read, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's just a small detail that Luke includes for us. I think Luke delights to include this detail. So here's the background on stoning in first century Jerusalem. Normally, if someone was sentenced to death by stoning, what it looked like was to take them to the edge of a cliff, maybe 10, 12 feet, to push them off. They hit the ground and possibly they're dead on impact. Just to make sure of the fact, they get a big boulder and they roll it off the cliff onto the body. And now he's definitely dead. That's the norm. Occasionally, the stoning was impromptu, it hadn't been prearranged, and that kind of stoning is what you had probably thought of going into this text. Doesn't like it. The gory details are too much. Normally, push off a cliff, impromptu stoning, just pick up the rocks and go for it. Just pick up the rocks and kill this man. And that's the kind of stoning we read about here. It hadn't been prearranged, but it was happening in the moment. And so for the guys throwing the rocks, to be agile, to get the rocks thrown, they have to take off their outer garments. And what they do is they lay those garments at the feet of a man named Saul. Why is that significant? Because culturally it would seem to be that the one who received the garments was in charge. He's not throwing the rocks, he's organizing the event. 
Now, why is that important? Because as you know, this man named Saul is very soon to become Paul. Very soon he himself will meet Jesus on the Damascus Road and his life will be transformed forever. And so Luke, I think, delights to include this detail because we know where this is headed. Saul's testimony that he will give later in this book is, I used to cast the vote to kill Christians and now I am one. So God is working through Stephen's death in the testimony of Paul, the apostle. Or come at it from a different angle. This is the event that causes the gospel to go out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Exactly as Jesus said it must happen. He says the gospel has to go out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. How is it going to push over that boundary through Stephen's death? God uses Stephen's death as the mechanism of getting the gospel out. And you see, it's not in vain that he's suffering. Living this life of communion with Christ is now being used wonderfully by God. Again, you have an option. You have choices. You are so young and, Lord willing, so much of your life yet to live and so many choices. And you need to decide, will you live a life that has eternal significance or will you choose not to? And it's not that you're being called to do anything fantastic. No one is calling you to be superhuman. The testimony of Stephen's life in Scripture shows us that the way in which these ordinary people are used for extraordinary things begins and ends with a life spent in communion with Christ. And if you would simply give yourself to that kind of life, you can rest and you can trust that the Lord will use you extraordinarily in ways that you don't even appreciate today. As the world looks in on your life, they might not say much about it. They may not think that you're doing anything special, but I guarantee you, there will be a story to tell in glory about your life because you sought Christ and communion with him. Now there's more having been used by God, Stephen then trusts like Christ. Having seen Christ, he trusts like Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? You'll notice Stephen says two things in his dying moments. Number one, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he falls to his knees and he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So just think about that. Stephen saw Christ. And the text seems to indicate he was much in the habit of doing this. He was a man whose face shone like an angel. He had communion with God. And so he starts to get used by God. He starts, his life starts to look Christ-like in his speech and in his suffering and in the way God uses him. And then in his dying moments, he says two things. 
Receive my spirit and don't hold this sin against them. Now, as I say those, maybe, maybe Jesus on the cross comes to mind. Because they're the same two things that Jesus said as he was dying. You see, it's not an accident. He's speaking again like Jesus did. Jesus said, Father, receive my spirit on the cross. And then he said, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and don't hold this sin against them. And it's extraordinary because if you picture the scene, this man is on his knees being hit by rocks and his life is ebbing away and he doesn't seek to retaliate. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't run. He doesn't show any signs of anxiety or fear. He evidences a deep-seated trust in the plans of God. So much so that he says two things, one concerning his own welfare, receive my spirit. Let me enter into fullness of communion with you. And secondly, concerning their welfare. As they threw rocks at him, he said, don't hold this against them. To think that he might say such a thing as they killed him. Where does such trust come from? The answer can only be that his life was founded upon communion with Christ. He was so at home with Jesus that he didn't need to fear and he didn't need to get angry or fight back. He trusted in the wisdom of God, even in his death. Now, again, that the application just leaps off the page to us, doesn't it? I love speaking to groups of young adults like you because I look at you and you have your whole lives ahead of you, Lord willing. And you have choices to make. And, and I see the potential for the glory of Christ amongst you to think of the lives that might be lived here for Christ's glory. And then every time I think of that, it is at the same time a very sobering thought. And here's why. Because at the same time, invariably, there are trials ahead of you. I can tell you there are trials ahead of you, not because I know your future, but because I know that you're living in a broken world. And there'll be times in your life where you are made to feel the reality of the brokenness of this world more than you would like. And quite possibly there are trials ahead of some of you that are so deep, that are so dark, that if you were told of them tonight, you would not be able to cope with the knowledge of it. And in God's wisdom, he ordains such trials. And it's so important that you decide now, this evening, what trajectory you want your life to follow. Because there is a trajectory that you might pick such that those trials are enough to crush you 
There is a trajectory that you can pick such that when the trials of life come, you will not stand up under them. It is the trajectory that turns your back on Christ, that says, I don't want anything to do with him. And that life lived apart from faith in the risen Lord Jesus is not strong enough to cope with the broken realities of this world. Or you can say, I want part of this. You might say, I want in on this. You might say, I believe the biblical testimony about this man God in the flesh who lived a perfect life, never once sinned, died a criminal's death on the cross, rose again triumphantly from the grave, validating his death and his ministry and entrusting in him, casting myself on him, my sins are forgiven. I am made right with God. And I want to spend the rest of my life in communion with him. If that's the trajectory you pick, then as we sing, we have a sure and steady anchor. And it's not that you are now free from the trials. You know that. It's not that you are now exempt from the trials of life, but that you have a foundation. Now you have a foundation, a solid one that can, that can bear you in those trials, that can give meaning and sense to the brokenness of life. And that can give you a hope. And that is the last thing that Luke tells us about. The last thing he says is that when Stephen had said these things, he fell asleep. And I love the way Luke puts it, he fell asleep, which is to say very intentionally he didn't die. Having seen Jesus, having been in communion with him, having made his life at home with Christ, Stephen did not die. He fell asleep. To put it another way, when Stephen's heart stopped beating and his life ended on this earth, he was never more alive. He was never more alive than the second that his heart stopped beating because he was in the presence of Christ. The one whom he had just seen as the rocks were hitting his body and he looked to heaven and saw Christ, he entered into his presence. And I love to ponder the fact, one hour later, I can only imagine the Christians were trying to make sense of what just happened. The first Christian martyr, what on earth just happened to the mission? A week later, the Christians, as you read on, are dispersed beyond Jerusalem. The gospel goes out by the means of Stephen's death. And they're still in shock at what happened. One year later, they may still be grieving the loss of this wonderful man, but they get on with the work of the ministry. Ten years later, he's still spoken about and the church is taking shape. And all the time, Stephen is in the presence of Christ. 2,000 years later, a group of young people gather together and submit to the teaching of God's word and Stephen is still in the presence of Christ. More alive than ever. More full of joy than ever. 
more full of love for the Lord Jesus than ever he was on earth. And he will be there forever. And this is the hope of the Christian life. You see, you have options and you can choose an extraordinary path. Not because you are special, but because you choose to put your faith in someone who is special. You choose an extraordinary path and you have no idea what God might be pleased to do through you for your earthly life. And the hope of it all is at the end, you will be with your Savior. Or you choose not to. There are other things going on that seem really cool and really important. There are other things that attract your attention right now. And you make a foolish choice and choose that you might give your life to those things. You might actually even tell yourself, you know what, I'll get to this later. I will get to this Jesus thing and I will spend my life in communion with him, but not right now. And that's a foolish thing to say. Because you don't know when your life is going to end. You don't know if it will finish tonight. And more to the point, the more you live apart from Christ, the harder your heart gets. It just keeps getting hardened by your sin. So don't think that three years from now, you might cast yourself upon Christ if you can't find it to do tonight. The only life worth living is one spent in communion with Christ. And know that as you choose to give yourself to pursuing Jesus through the text of Scripture, you will start to look like him. You'll start to speak like him. You'll start to suffer like him. You'll be used by God like he was. You will trust like he trusted. And eventually when your life comes to an end, you will be with him. Pray with me to close. Our Father, we praise you for the gospel this evening. We thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to live amongst us and to die for us. Our Father, we praise you that he rose from the grave. And that as we consider his resurrection, we know that the cross achieved exactly what he said it would. It made a payment for sin. It provided access to you. Father, to think that we might be in a right relationship with you. All of our sin and our pride rightly cuts us off from you, but Jesus made a way for that relationship to be restored and made right. And more than that, that we can spend our lives enjoying communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The joy of a life spent with you. We give you thanks, Lord, that that is even on the table this evening as an option. 
And so I pray for anyone here, and you, you know our hearts. For anyone here who is in their sin, who is not right with you, that you would quicken their hearts to life to renounce their sin and their pride, to acknowledge Christ as he truly is, Lord, Savior. Father, that they would cast themselves on the Son for salvation. And for all of us, that the truth would be that we pursue Christ day after day after day, Help us not get distracted. Help us not lose focus, but to focus on Christ. Trusting that as we pursue him, you would conform us to look like him. That like Stephen, we would live out lives that look so Jesus-like. That we would speak of him and speak like him that we would trust in you in the way that he trusted in you, that we would be used by you and that you would keep fresh in our hearts the hope that we have of being with him. Father, may this be the foundation of our lives. We ask in his precious name. Amen.